about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Church meetings. What are the things that could change and really wouldn't bother you? The morning tea? The handout? The location? The Bible readings, the prayer, the liturgy, the sacraments, the music, the building? How much change could we get away with before you properly got annoyed, though? Before something mattered to you? Well, the early Christians have been considering their Old Testament heritage in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Their opponents, too, have been trying to grapple with this new teaching as well but not in the same way. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been watching from the sidelines, but over the last few chapters, they've become increasingly active. This teaching about Jesus is a threat and it needs to be neutralised. Because if you've been doing Judaism all your life and then someone comes along and tells you that you're doing it wrong and that everything you care about has to change... Well, obviously that matters. But Stephen hits the nail on the head today. If you let the Holy Spirit speak to you through the Old Testament scripture, you see that far from being a threat, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that is prophesied and of all that is promised. Acts chapter 7 is where this issue really comes to the fore where the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they decide enough is enough. And the guy who takes them on, unwittingly or not, is Stephen. And it's the next major turning point in the narrative of Acts so far. After the commission of Acts 1 verse 8 and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Christians are consolidated, grown, strengthened and encouraged in Jerusalem. And then they're refined because it's in Jerusalem that they start to be persecuted. And it is this persecution that turns out to be the means by which they are sent and the commission actually starts to be realised. Well, as we saw last week, the church has stuff that they have to sort out internally. There are always going to be logistics that need to be addressed. The apostles chose godly men to delegate these responsibilities to. Two of these guys, Stephen and Philip, are the subject of the next couple of chapters of Acts. As Stephen is elevated uh, in his role amongst the early church, for he's now responsible for the daily distribution of food to those who are in need, so too the target on his back increases in size. Reading in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power and did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. He is a man full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, able to argue persuasively with the best and sharpest theological minds going around. And he has engaged in an argument with the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, these guys were Jews who had been taken into slavery by the Romans and then freed from that slavery at a later time. And they had Roman citizenship as a result. 
And it would seem apparent that they have created their own group to distinguish themselves as freed Jews living in Rome as opposed to free Jews who have moved and now live in Rome. Now this makes their accusations even more pointed and themselves even more culpable. More pointed because a combination of these guys and the Sanhedrin, which we'll see later, is a match similar to what Jesus faced a couple of weeks earlier. And more culpable because they understand what it is to be in slavery and then freed from slavery. If nothing more, these guys had a more grounded understanding of Israel's history than most people going around. Anyway, they can't get one up on Stephen. They could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Well, when you're argued into a corner and you're convicted of the error of your ways, what do you do? The hearers of Peter's speech on Pentecost cried out, brothers, what should we do? But where Peter's words convinced back in Acts chapter 2, Stephen's words only solidified further his hearers' hardness of heart. Their decision was, let's play dirty. They wangle up some false witnesses to bring charges against him. And then they drag him up before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin has been quite busy recently. Along with trying to cover up the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead... In the past couple of chapters, they have had Peter and John brought before them to explain themselves. Filled with jealousy, they haul the whole group of the apostles in front of them to explain themselves, and then they throw them in jail overnight, and they were miraculously released by an angel. And right now, in Acts chapter 7, they start picking off the ones around the edge, and so Stephen is brought before them. So what was the charge brought against him? Chapter 6, verse 11. And they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. The charge is this, they're going to destroy the temple, they're going to change the law, and both of these things we care a lot about. Now, this is difficult, because back in John 2, Jesus did actually say that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, John, helpfully for us, clarifies that Jesus was talking about his body. It was a reference to the cross. But if you're not down with Jesus' meaning to start with, it's an even harder pill to swallow to think that he's talking about the temple. And then the law. Well, yes, there are some changes, but Stephen was not speaking against the law. In fact, he was speaking as an ambassador of the one who fulfills that law. So on both the issue of the temple and the law, their issue is that Jesus just doesn't fit. They don't believe that what they've been doing for centuries can be reconciled with the apostles' teaching about Jesus. But they still need false witnesses to pin him. 
See, it wasn't that Stephen was preaching an inconsiderate or ill-conceived or even misunderstood message. He preached and reasoned and argued with all grace and wisdom. They knew what he was talking about. But if you're not listening, you won't listen and will stop at nothing to silence what you don't want to hear. You play dirty. And so they got the false witnesses. He speaks against the temple and against the law. He will destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses gave to us. Are these charges true? The high priest asked. Well, it's not Peter or even Paul, but Stephen who gets the gong for the longest speech in the book of Acts. This is a big, long passage, and just so you know what's coming, what we're going to do is we're going to take a peek at the last chapter, the last page, because we need to know where Stephen is taking us before we look at it. So verse 51 of chapter 7, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. This is his point. You always resist God and those he sends. You don't listen to God and those he sends. And so Stephen's speech is then about the mode of relationship between God and his people throughout their history. This relationship, he says, predated the temple. It predated the law. It predated even the nation of Israel itself. And it started back, well, it started before Abraham, but he starts at Abraham. Now, Abraham was just some guy in the middle of Nowheresville. And God came to him and said, leave your country and your people and go to the land that I will show you. Now, this is significant. God came to him. God came to him laden with promises of descendants and land and blessings. God made the first move. And as Abraham then steps out in faith, God sets about making a nation that would be his own to serve him. Now, life would not necessarily be easy for this new nation, but God would have their back. Chapter 7, verse 6. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Well, the promises of Abraham and his descendants started to happen. And through starting here, Stephen establishes God as seeking out his people and blessing them and promising to be with them. And then he looks at this case in point. He sweeps through Israelite history down into Egypt with Joseph and then back out again at the Exodus with Moses. Verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. God was with him. His own people are against him. They're jealous enough to hang a for sale sign around his neck and sell him off as a slave. I mean, who does that to their own people, let alone your own brother? But Joseph ends up 
as a slave in Egypt, but God was with him in a foreign land. Well, Joseph rode a long wave of success to the very top of the pyramid in Egypt, and that helped God's people because as famine gripped the land, they ended up being saved into a foreign land, into a foreign land by Joseph. And that's how the people get into Egypt. And over the next couple of centuries, their numbers swell. We know the story. They're enslaved in a country not their own. And then it is time for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And he does it through Moses. Verse 20. At that time, Moses was born. And he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. Because the next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And his own people rejected him, just like Joseph in the passage before. Well, 40 years later, he sees a burning bush and he goes to see what's going on. But God is there. He is standing on holy ground. God has revealed himself to Moses. He has seen the oppression of his people in Egypt and Moses will be instrumental in their release. Verse 53, uh, sorry, 35. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Now that quote is the second time that Moses' words from Deuteronomy 32 are used in the last couple of chapters of Acts. They also feature in Peter's explanation of his healing a crippled man back in Acts chapter 3. God has already come good on his promises and it is this prophecy of Moses himself that they have missed, that the Pharisees have just not listened to. You can feel the frustration. Peter and now Stephen explains to these guys, your man, Moses, Moses, he spoke of Jesus, of one you must listen to lest you be cut off. Okay. The great saving act of the Old Testament, the rescue and the deliverance from slavery in Egypt has happened. God is with his people in a foreign land, looking out for his people, despite his people rejecting both Joseph and Moses. Promises have been delivered and the relationship of God and his people is well and truly established. The relationship is well established by the time the law is handed down to them. And so the law is given as an expression of the relationship that God has with his people, characterised by reverence and submission, love and protection. 
But you remember that as Moses receives it on behalf of the people on Mount Sinai, at that moment, the people were down on the plains worshipping a golden calf. An incredible scene of in-your-face idolatry. And so, verse 42, God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. And they received the due punishment for their disobedience. Well, sure, God kept his promises and they eventually became a great nation. There were some glory days in there. There were some streaks of good obedience. But eventually, they divided. They were taken off into exile. They became a people scattered. Prophets came and were ignored and persecuted. They warned that turning away from God would reap judgment. They prophesied of a Messiah. But they were a stiff-necked people, now scattered among the nations. And then there's the temple. Well, it was in those glory days that they built the temple. Solomon, King Solomon had the honours there. And Stephen points out to them that actually the temple hasn't been there forever. Truth be told, this is the second one. And apparently nothing like the first one. But, according to Stephen, their temple was only ever tolerated by God. Whereas Moses was instructed to build a tabernacle and it was carried from place to place as a sign that God was with his people, the temple was an afterthought by David, put on ice for his son Solomon to sort out. And then Stephen rightly reasons in verse 48, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? says the Lord. Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so to summarise, their history, the history of Israel, is punctured by defiance, disobedience, idolatry and jealousy, rather than loving the Lord. In fact, Stephen will say, you guys are guilty of exactly what you're charging me with. You love the law and you love the temple but you've forgotten God such that you don't do either the law or the temple in the way that it was intended. You think we're going to change the law? But you don't even understand that it is an expression of a relationship with God and not the substance. You think we're going to destroy the temple? Well, long before it existed, God came to you. Location has never been a problem with God. God sought out, looked after protected and guided you he was there with you where you were wherever you were you love the law and the temple but you have forgotten God if you had remembered and sought a relationship with God Jesus would make sense to you and then his last words in verse 51 you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears you are just like your fathers you always resist the Holy Spirit was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, have received, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. Well, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man called Saul. God is in control here. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, God watching on and Jesus standing, affirming that Stephen's words and that what is happening is all a part of his plan. And this is the moment where Judaism and Christianity officially break up. And the breakup and all that ensues after is over what people think of Jesus. And Stephen is killed, martyred for a message that was too hard to hear for his witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus as the fulfilment of all that they held on to so tightly. But far from being the end, this and the surrounding chapters are concentrated and packed with hope. The death of Stephen jolted into action a vigour in persecuting Christians. And so the Christians scattered from Jerusalem and out into the surrounding provinces of Judea and into Samaria. But rather than hiding under rocks and in crevices, they begin to preach in their new surrounds. And the gospel spreads. They preach the word wherever they went. This very act here crunches into second gear the mission of Acts 1 verse 8, that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. It was a mission not begun by strategy or desire, but by persecution. The stoning of Stephen was not a showstopper for the early church. In fact, it's the catalyst that causes the early church to boil over into the surrounding regions. And such a catalyst was this moment that if you look even closer, there is Saul. Saul, who would later become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was right there. He heard every word of Stephen's speech and he watched the stoning. And as Stephen prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, God ordained Saul to be a recipient of Stephen's request. Because Saul, Paul, is later converted and rather than leading a militant offensive against Christians, he becomes the greatest evangelist used by God to preach the good news to the nations. See, a few short verses at the end of the lowest point yet for the early church, but in amongst them we can see the seeds of the mission of taking Jesus to the nations and to the ends of the earth. Well, as this series in Acts is brought to a close, it should bring into sharp focus Stephen's main point, the warning against resisting the Holy Spirit and not truly listening, hearing and changing. It is the Holy Spirit who comes close, reveals to us the truths about Jesus Christ, that following him is the only way to truly live life in obedience and relationship with God. We need a willingness to listen and to be transformed rather than a refusal to hear the truth or be moulded by the truth for fear that we might have to change. That was the Pharisees and the Sadducees all over. An inability to hear the good news of Jesus and be transformed by it because it would change stuff that they held dear. What do we hold dear? What matters to us? What matters to us as a church, 
at church, when we meet as a community of believers. I hope that there are a lot of things that matter. The Bible readings, the preaching, the fellowship. But it is a relationship with God. For that is what draws us together. The Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to his people is what draws us near. And it is the Holy Spirit that points us to the risen Lord Jesus. If that is what matters to you and that fuels a desire for it to matter to others, then that is good enough. We can spend a lot of time worrying and caring and spending energy on things that don't matter. Stuff that is of little relevance. That's not to be dismissive. The reality is that things need to be done. Logistics have to be taken care of. But if these things cloud our vision, or if it crowds our vision, and we lose focus of Jesus, we have put something ahead of our Lord. That's what the law and the temple became to the people, the Pharisees. And it crowded out God. But it also confined God. Putting the importance of the temple or the law ahead of a relationship with God confines him. It puts him, literally, in a box. That is how the Pharisees liked it. God lived at the temple. I went and saw him occasionally. Outside, there were some rules that I followed, but for the most part, I could do what I liked. As long as I was on my best behaviour at the temple and I didn't break too many laws. It was a bare minimum approach. Well, do we today confine God to the temple? I don't think many of us here believe that God literally lives in this building any more than he lives in the cottage out the front or at my uncle's house in Gosford. Our problem is not one of physically understanding where God is. We know that he is not confined to the church building proper. But do we confine him to the church building? Do our actions and our thoughts and our words and our apathy imply that God lives here and he does not ride home in the car with me? He does not go to work with me. He does not be with my family and me. I'm guilty of that. I've gone days without even considering that God exists. Do we confine God to this church building and don't give him a second thought this week? Or do we invite him in? Do we remember his presence and his love for us and what difference does it make or should it make? See, this passage not only showed us that God comes to us and is with us wherever we are, it spawned the next wave of the spread of the gospel. Today, we are at the forefront of that wave and so with the Holy Spirit guiding me, I am where I am to be a witness today, tomorrow and the next day. The groups in which we circulate, we live with, we work with, we argue with, we socialise with, we play with, we are there to be witnesses. And that we would do it with the grace and the power and the courage and conviction of Stephen, that should be our prayer. We are here to live in the light of what Jesus Christ has done, to live in step with the Holy Spirit and to live a life that bears witness and gives glory to the risen Lord Jesus. That, brothers and sisters, is what matters. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have drawn near to us, that you have saved us through your Son, and that you strengthen and guide us now by your Spirit. 
Father, may we listen to your words and be humble enough to change as we are convicted. May we be your witnesses as we seek to live for you, that those around us would also praise your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au